0: Peter Singer, author of important books such as Animal Liberation, Practical Ethics, and The Life You Can Save, helped launch the animal rights and effective altruism movements while contributing to the development of bioethics. Now in his book Ethics in the Real World, Singer shows that he is also a master at dissecting important current events in a few hundred words. Anantha Duryapa has served as inaugural director of the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development, based in New Delhi, India since 2014. He now works to advance UNESCO MGIEP as a leading science and evidence-based research institute on education for peace, sustainable development, and global citizenship.
1: Peter Singer, Anantha Duryapa, welcome back to the One Planet Podcast. We're speaking today on the occasion of World Environment Day, something that is uh, dear to both you and your organizations, you know, how to uh, fight for a environmental justice. And you've really both also been very involved in the philosophical questions of how we might lead better lives with respect to the environment, with respect to animals. As you reflect on the issues of humans and nature, how could we better be? Be stewards of our environment?
2: Well, that's a big question and there are many things that we could do to be better stewards of our environment. One thing obviously that we're all aware of nowadays is the fact that we are changing the climate of our planet through activities, both in terms of the burning of fossil fuels for generating electricity and for transport, but also through our meat consumption and in particular the cattle and both beef and dairy cattle and other ruminant animals that are putting large quantities of methane into the atmosphere. So that's clearly one thing that we should change and we need to change very urgently. But, but the whole attitude to the preservation of our environment, to the animals who have been here for many cases, many millions of years before us, whose habitat we are destroying. And whose environment we are poisoning in various ways. That's another question that I think really needs a more radical shift in attitude so that we have more concern for the well-being of non-human animals and of the non-human environment uh, on which all life lives.
1: Yes, and it's this issue of you know how we can prepare people or how we can modify our education models to really include kindness, which I know has, of course, been very important to you, Anantha Duryapa, and your UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute. You have this kindness campaign, and you've really been reflecting for a long time, your whole career, on how we can make our education models not just be geared to an economic model of preparing people for their uh, professions, but also preparing them to be better, more engage global citizens.
3: Thank you, Mia. Uh, nice to meet you, Peter. I'm going to respond with starting with a sense of uh, frustration. Frustration in the fact that you know we we have all the policies in place, we have the resolutions. We're just looking back and you know starting off with the human rights, the Charter of Human Rights, but we violate human rights on a daily basis across the world to today. Then we have the, and I was interested to find out that there's a world charter for nature that was done some, sometime in the 1980s. And then we have the earth charter. And when you read these, these charters, uh, we, we would sort of say that we, we've got it all charted out. I would like to, it is very anthropocentric, uh, very human uh, induced, but at least... Uh, it, it talks about protection of the of nature the living organisms the diversity so forth and so on but we don't do anything we, we our behaviors have not really changed and so and I was becoming very frustrated you know working first as an academic in university teaching environmental economics and development economics both not talking to each other and then joining UNEP in Nairobi with the environment program. And again, as I see, we, we, we have these big meetings, we talk, we proclaim, we make all these uh, grand proclamations that we're going to. And then, we, and then we go back to business as usual. And I think Peter mentioned a, a, a term that I, I think I would like to explore on attitudes and values and beliefs. And, and I think we've got a benchmark that we measure progress wrong. I don't know how it crept or it crept into our lives. This, this, I always call it a pesky little thing called GDP and material wealth. And for some reason, it seems that that tells us that we are well and we are prosperous. And uh, psychologists, uh, behavioral economists, and so forth have said no. Uh, and we have the evidence to say that it doesn't. But yet we continue. And, I, I, and I'm sort of saying, so how do we change that mindset? And, and our education systems in many ways actually uh, tend to support the kind of destructive activities that we have. It's put as a very competitive environment. It's basically about job, you know, creating job opportunities, and that's all our students are looking for. But I'm happy to also notice that the younger generation is wanting change, is wanting and is concerned about the way my generation and, and ones before that have destroyed and leaving a very destroyed planet for, to them to clean up the mess. So I, I'm looking to the youth and in fact, looking to their risk-taking behavior to change and rock the boat and really start thinking about how we can change the education system that will provide the kind of competencies, I would say, to define the kind of values that will look and respect other living beings as of on equal footings, and and to pro, and you know we are supposed to be the custodians, and we're doing a bloody bad job out of it. they are kind of destroying it. But I'll I'll keep I'll stop there, and I'll hear more from
2: Peter. Yeah, thank you very much, and Anthony. Good, good to meet you too. And I do agree with your remarks. I think that the GDP-based indicator of of progress, which is a sort of material consumer society progress, is misleading. And I think there has been a little bit of a move against it. Of course, the uh, small Himalayan country of Bhutan has adopted gross national happiness as standard to measure things by. And other countries, although I don't think they take it as seriously as, as Bhutan does, have talked more about measuring other indicators. The Human Development Index is being used. So, we've made some progress away from that but certainly not enough and we are still making a, a mess of things i hope you're right about the younger generation i think the, it's it's hard to generalize there are certainly important forces in the younger generation that are very concerned about what we're doing to the planet's climate for example uh, uh, greta thunberg is an obvious example of that and there are many people who support her views but will this be maintained as, as that generation uh, gets older and, and takes over from us? Is it even fully representative of that generation? It's it's hard to say. And I think governments are reluctant to introduce radical change. And uh, really, we need to make incremental change. And in some, in some areas, I think there's some hope that we can. I think on Climate change. We are making some progress now. Um, sometimes that's technological progress. The fact that we've got ways of generating electricity from the sun or the wind that can compete economically with coal and other fossil fuels is, is certainly a, a hopeful sign. But still, we are still doing immense damage to our environment, and it's going to be a struggle, I think, to rescue enough of it so that it can survive and. and even if future generations do have the kinds of values that uh, you and I hope they will have, will there still be that much of it left for them to be able to, to rescue and restore?
1: I want to say to you both that I've been inspired by uh, the conversations that we were able to have previously. And of course, we're working with students and, and I wasn't, I won't share it yet, but I was inspired to, to think about what can be done. And we know that we have to accelerate the change. So. I will share something soon. It, it could be a solution. It's it's hard to say. It You have to get support behind it. But yes, we have to think realistically within our current models and then give it the shove it needs. Anyway, that's all I will say about that. But I had been inspired by both of your lifelong dedication to trying to change the systems that, that we live in and, and don't serve us well enough. On this point of happiness, I, I love that gross uh, national happiness index. And I think uh, sometimes our sense of unhappiness, it, they say it comes from when we compare ourselves to others, you were talking both about this competitiveness, you know, or having your uh, education model based on your uh, eventual earnings. And I think that it's when we focus a lot on money, uh, we don't get that fulfillment that you really get from community or family. And when you feel more connected to people, you don't need as many things. Mm-hmm.
2: So Yeah, okay. I, I think that's true. Right? I think we can find better ways of living. There are better ways of living. The, the question always is, how do we actually get people to move there given the, the power of uh, basically the consumer society and all of the advertising that that generates and uh, the models that it puts before the eyes of young people? So
3: let me uh, jump in here with some from some experiments that we have done and, and some, some positive results that we are getting that could be kind of brought into the education system. And I just wanted to focus on the social and emotional learning dimensions that we have been working on. And, you know, uh, we were very surprised that even at the six week intervention, how, how the impact it has had on the way that people perceive others as well as other uh, beings. And we have one on climate change, which we have taken a very different approach than just, you know, I think by just saying to people that we have a problem and this is, so that's the the kind of knowledge which is necessary, but I think we need to take to the next level in terms of having that empathy, empathy with others who are going to be hurt by climate change, Empathy with other living beings, which are going to be, in many cases, pushed to extinction. You know, as an economist <laughs> trained as a as a classical economist, uh, for a long time, you know, I, I this is from a personal relation that I was kind of distanced from from the things that I was studying, biodiversity and so. On. But but once you start practicing and uh, you know contemplative practices. And then also the whole notion of, you know, one of the things that really moved me was this movie that, or this documentary that was just won, I think, in the Oscar and the BAFTA, is the Octopus, My Friend, and how it had, and I, and I, and I kind of told a lot of my nephews and nieces to watch it, and 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 they couldn't believe that an octopus could have feelings and it could reach out and exchange. and also the fact that at some point in time, when it felt that it, was, it had done what it had to do, it offered itself as, as, as to its praise. So in a sense, it embraced its life, and then it says, I've come to my end. So it was a beautiful understanding of other, other beings that they, they have as well emotions as much as, as that we do, and we have to learn how to sort of empathize with that. But that doesn't mean that we are going to sort of say that, you know, we can't, uh, because you have to let nature take itself in its own way. Because there is something which can be very dangerous from this social and emotional uh, learning exercises is what they call empathetic distress where you become so empathetic towards others and yet can't do anything, you get into a depression and a depressing mode yourself, and that's not good. And so that's why they talked about compassion, which is empathy in action. Do something, and even if you, at least any little thing, so that it, you, you sort of feel that you're part of that solution and you attempted to do it and so resolve it within yourself, that you're at peace with yourself. So, and we found that even with a six-week intervention, we could actually see quite a bit of change. So imagine if it was mainstreamed within education as part of our educational aspects. And, and I'll, I'll kind of stop, but I want later on, if I, you give me an opportunity, I'll talk a little bit about an initiative that we've been taking on looking at what the sciences of learning have been producing over the last 20 years, a relatively new field. And there's some very promising signs that, We can change education uh, and education for, I don't like to use the word humanity anymore because that's always purely from a human perspective, but an education for planet Earth and which means all the living things that make it such a beautiful uh, blue dot, as I always call it, after Carl Sagan's uh, great term, term that he used for our planet.
2: Right, yes. So I think the you mentioned the the octopus, my teacher film, which I think was, was particularly interesting because an octopus is very far removed from us in evolutionary terms, much further than, than the animals that we typically eat, that most people do, like uh, cows and pigs and, and chickens. And yet, as you say, there was this empathy for that particular octopus once people could see it over a period of time and see the, the changes in its uh, in its life. So I agree it should be possible to to teach this for other animals. But it seems to me that the most difficult ones are the ones that people are used to eating. That, you know, it's, it's not so difficult to revoke love for panda bears or seals or uh, you know, a whole range of other animals, obviously dogs and cats and horses. But there seems to be like a curtain that comes down in front of our empathy when we people try and get us to have concern for the domestic animals, who now are such a, a vast part of the biomass of our planet, greatly outnumbering the biomass of all the wild animals left. So I think you know this is this is something that may be more difficult if if you have examples of how education can change attitude to those animals who we eat as well, that would be very encouraging. But that seems to me to be a more difficult barrier to overcome. Uh, And yet it's an important barrier because of the enormous influence that the vast number of animals, something like 74 billion animals, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, that we raise and kill each year on this planet. And if we can't make inroads into that, Uh, and change attitudes to that, then I still have fears for where we are going.
1: I think that it must be something that's done in tandem with home education, because traditionally we don't focus a lot of time in our education models on, you know, where we get our food, you know, agriculture, this is neglected, you know, people are just, dis- they don't even understand the food production models. And so it's, and and yet, if it's, it has to be integrated with how we learn our our customs, our rituals at table. If we really understood it, I think that, you know, you and I were talking before, Peter, about how, you know, if children, when children begin to understand that what they're eating, you know, was an animal that, that, like the stuffed animals that they cherish and love, there's a connection in that they're actually eating that. If we were just more open and transparent, I think that that changes minds, but we just, as you say, we have to make an effort to see the videos, to see how, you know, the conditions and abattoirs, et cetera. But yeah, I think it has to be done at education at home and education in the school that really doesn't usually cover our, our dietary habits and and those things.
3: Uh, yes, Mia, but if, if we bring in the whole notion of what biodiversity is and how the interlinkages and stuff, you can do it in school. But I, I, but I agree in a sense that the domestic uh, animals, like the cattle and the and the, uh, and the and the lamb, you know, these are the ones that find themselves on the plate, and it's 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 a it's a crying shame when you see so much of wastage goes, you know, when you think about an animal animal was sacrificed, and then when you go to the restaurants, you see so much of it left on the plate it's it's doing so much injustice to the, the to a living thing that uh, basically was killed to provide this and you know i'm moving to i'm uh, moving towards vegetarianism as one grows old and one sees this i used to love mutton and 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 but i can't f- see myself now having seeing a lamb or a, a young g- goat been it's just it's not possible but i don't want to impose that on and i don't impose it on my children i want them to learn that through their own experiences that they come to that that decision on your on their own journey but they must experience that and i think that's what education should do and it's it seems like such a foreign exotic because they just you know they only see it in 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 books and they and they see it maybe in movies but in real life. So I think that's the, the, the whole experiential learning is really missing when it comes to the relationship with nature and biodiversity in, in, in large.
0: Hi, my name is Caroline Bell. I'm a rising sophomore at Barnard College of Columbia University, studying psychology and English for the film studies concentration. From a student perspective, I can really gravitate towards everything Anantha, Peter, and Mia have discussed thus far in relation to the importance of teaching about climate change, biodiversity, and general environmental issues and factors in schools and at home. Of course, growing up in elementary school, you're often generally taught about global warming, at least in my experience, but you don't really understand the brevity of that until you're much older. Then i went to more conservative schools during middle school where religion often influenced how they approached or did not approach environmental issues and in high school i ultimately took an international baccalaureate environmental sciences class in my senior year where i was able to finally get some sort of a grasp on how the environment is truly being impacted and has been impacted over the course of many years it's interesting that the documentary My Octopus Teacher was mentioned. It's a terrific film that does teach the compassion and the connections we have with nature and animals, even ones like octopuses that we don't interact with on a daily basis. But I find often documentaries were the ways in which my high school environmental teacher educated us. And I believe it's because film, especially documentaries, have a certain power in their visual medium to really show us what we are incapable of experiencing on a day-to-day basis and putting us in the midst of the situation so we can have a chance at human empathy and compassion often my environmental teacher would show us films like before the flood and one that really stood out to me was a 2008 documentary directed by robert kenner which was called food incorporated and this film speaks a little bit more to what was being discussed previously where it really highlighted exactly where food comes from how animals are slaughtered or housed in unimaginable conditions, how corporations are overtaking farmers in agriculture, etc. It can be kind of a a tough watch at times, but that film does an incredible job of really evoking that empathy and compassion from its audience. Uh, That the animals we consume on a daily basis aren't necessarily that out of reach from us feeling for them, and the extent to which bigger corporations are really exploiting farmers who would more ethically raise these animals so that the market and consumers become dependent on these businesses that aren't necessarily ethical in their animal treatment. Aside from consumption as well, there's an incredible animated short film that came out earlier this year called Save Ralph, written and directed by Spencer Susser, that quite interestingly and strongly covers the topic of animal testing. And it follows the character of a rabbit named Ralph and his day job as a subject for animal testing. Um, It also stars Taika Waititi, Ricky Gervais, Zac Efron, Olivia Munn, and other notable actors. But I think aside from these films as a means of education, culture and religion also have a role in the way young people are educated at home about the environment and their relationship to the environment. For example, I grew up in a Hispanic home where it's usually common to eat dishes with pork, chicken, beef, etc. Whereas someone who's grown up in a Hindu home may be completely detached from consuming those animals. So for someone like me, it can be a bit harder to really pull away from that sort of consumption and that sort of relationship with the environment because of how I was raised and what my culture presented to me. It's still generally hard, but when having those compassionate moments when watching those films, for example, I have a greater awareness where I can start making better choices around me in the environment. And if I generally fail and fall back on those choices when it comes to what I eat and consume, I'll try to make up for that in other ways. For example, I've started buying clothing secondhand online and in person, I've invested in reusable items like water bottles and recyclable bags, and there are even apps you can find that tell you the extent to which a certain brand or company has products that are sustainable and ethically sourced. So in general, I agree that true environmental education does start from a place of compassion. I think the environment is such a broad concept that we cannot begin to comprehend if we don't start from a place where we as humans can reconnect with nature. And once we do that, it can become easier to educate ourselves more. I think schools have a greater responsibility on their shoulders to take this challenge on as well as the days pass. And we can choose to bring these discussions at home where these discussions may or may not already be happening. But ultimately, I also believe we have the responsibility to take it upon ourselves to do what we can at any capacity, because those small actions in conjunction with education is ultimately what is going to propel us further in conserving what we have left of the world.
3: I think we have enough information about all these uh, relationships I think we now to really get to get our children to experience it. And, and then finally, the final decision, and I also, even with the three kids I have, is that they will need to come to that, that agreement because once they do, that's a sustainable trajectory because that becomes a trait
2: within themselves. Yes, I, I agree that they um, do need to get to that point. And again, the question is, how we get them to it. And like Mia was suggesting that it, it has to come through education in the home. But, you know, whereas we can find ways of changing education in the schools, if, if government policies change, we can have different programs. Maybe the, as you were saying, answer the, the program that you've developed uh, that makes an impact in six weeks could become part of school curricula in uh, many countries. But it's, it's harder to change education in the home because that does depend on the parents and parents will pass on their own values so that makes it somewhat difficult to make those changes i believe but but i do think it's very important i think we need to get children to have more concern for for nature as we've been saying and if we don't have that then the the future is going to be a very difficult one for for nature and for the whole planet
1: and also what's, it's interesting, these, we have to work within markets, markets can also give pressure. So I think that when we have this demand for alternatives to um, meet consumption, and we see how, you know, viable, you know, inexpensive but healthy uh, options and I know that they're there but people still have this barrier and they're thinking that if it doesn't include meat or it's so difficult or it's hard to get or the vegan or organic solutions are expensive when those things are more readily available you know in, in you know in many outlets that encourages people because you honestly you really feel good when you're not when you're eating healthy and then just it makes, I think, I believe, and I know you practice this when you're not causing pain to another being, that feels good. If you had to really examine and that you're causing pain to a being through eating that would leave a bad taste in your mouth if you really, you know, thought about it. And I, I know you practice that. So there are really wonderful solutions out there. Uh, they call it the taste-alikes and they're really convincing and it's just textures and flavors that are so close. And yet you can feel good about eating them. And then I just have to look to you or to, you know, Ingrid Newkirk of PETA, you know, these, you're like almost lifelong vegans and you you look great, you know, you wouldn't be able to guess your age so vanity must come into it as well that helps people wow this is a great advertisement for being a vegan
2: well thank you yes i i I do feel good and i think i feel good about it in in two different ways you've mentioned the idea of of feeling good about not being complicit in the raising and slaughtering of animals particularly when that raising is uh, mostly in huge factory farms where they're Crowded together by the thousands or tens of thousands in a single building, but also I, I do think it's a it's a good diet. I think a plant-based diet is a healthy diet. It's lighter. It's more digestible. It's not associated with some of the diseases of of civilization, as they're called the diseases of the di- cancers of the digestive system, coronary artery disease, that come from eating a lot of animal products. So I hope it can be spread in this way and and. You're also right to mention that the, 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 the look of taste-alike products are rapidly increasing. You know, having been a vegetarian for 50 years before there were many of these products, I don't personally feel I need them. I like eating uh, grains and vegetables and maybe tofu, which is an ancient protein product, of course, and, and, and the pulses, the lentils and, and uh, other pulses that have been a staple in uh, the Indian subcontinent for so long. But but sure, if if people have got used to the the taste, the mouthfeel of hamburger or something like that, and they can get the Impossible Burgers or the Beyond Meat Burgers, which are plant-based, and give them that taste and chewiness that they like, then I welcome that. And it, it may be a possible solution to at least some of the problems that we're causing. So, yeah.
3: so my take would be like you know a whole seven billion people of vegetarians is going to be practically impossible. I, I make a plea for moderation and in terms of and don't and zero wastage is what I'm looking for. But when you talked about the fact that they are so expensive which is, which is true, that's a classic case of institutional failure actually because, the cattle industry and the, and, and the rest are really heavily subsidized. If you really put the true costs you know, involved in producing that, they're definitely going to be more expensive than the plant-based uh, products. So the fact is they have not been subsidized. And if people talk about let the market define it, then get rid of those hidden subsidies because uh, that's what makes it so cheap compared to to the plant base, just the fact that you are subsidizing fossil fuels and you're not uh, really putting the true price of fossil fuels, which means it takes the cost of all the externalities that it produces, it would be a much more expensive uh, option than all the green technologies that we have. But the, the, So that's a perfect example of an institutional failure and a, a market failure if, I, if in terms of you want to look at use real economics to define the problem.
2: Yes, absolutely. If you price in the externalities of the meat industry, you would certainly it would certainly be much more expensive than the, the plant based products. Um, but yeah, that is a market failure, and then we have to think about how we can rectify that. Uh, I know there's a movement in the Netherlands uh, called the uh, True Price, where there's uh, supermarkets that actually show the true price of products. They try to calculate the externalities, and they charge you more. And then the additional amount that they charge goes to organizations that are trying to compensate those who suffer the externalities or active be active against the continuation of those externalities. And that's a nice idea. But again, it's, it's hard to see it becoming a mass movement because it involves people voluntarily paying more for their product than they would have to do at a different supermarket that didn't charge t- true prices. <laughs>
1: And so we've been focusing on animal welfare as an important aspect of, you know, dealing with the um, climate crisis, moving towards uh, vegan diets, et cetera. As you think about the environment and the next 10 years, which most people agree are crucial, what makes you hopeful? Uh, How could we put greater pressures on legislators and others to bring about the change we want to see?
2: Well, as I said earlier, one thing that makes me hopeful is the improving technology for clean energy, for clean generation of electricity through solar and, and wind. We've talked about the alternatives for me. Those things do make me hopeful. Some The, the fact that the population of some countries is, is starting to grow rather slowly, if, or in some cases not grow at all. Recent reports about for birth rates remaining quite low in China and the United States also has a lower birth rate. These could help, but population rates are still high in Sub-Saharan Africa, and so preserving the environment there becomes more and more difficult as population grows still quite rapidly there. So I have I think we have some reasons for hope, but we have some reasons to be not all that optimistic, and to say uh, we still there's still an immense amount that we have to do to Save the planet and to save nature and the biodiversity that we have here.
3: Yeah, you give when you say ten years, that's a luxury. <laughs> Although many will say it's really short, but in terms of policy, ten years, I would still I would go with the with the with the education system. Introduce this whole uh, notion of how you do in, in a sense of empathy, just not for others, which we need a lot. If you look at the way the pandemic has, has brought out the, the worst in, in all of us in terms of each looking after their own self and protecting it and not, and not realizing it is such a global good that it just spreads across borders. I think by intervening at the school and I see a positive aspects for a country like India which has one of the largest, youngest, uh, young population, uh, approximately about 800 million, and more than 300 of them are in schools. And, and they have just passed the new education policy 2020, and, and this whole notion of social and emotional, with the, the whole notion of empathy and compassion, part of that system. And, and the ministry is extremely uh, supportive of uh, mainstreaming this and we made a very strong case that it should not become another course by itself or a subject by by itself but it should be just part of the school system and part of the education structure if you might use that term so we feel that just looking at india itself will be a, will be will be a great will provide some some relief on the global level because in a sense they are they are growing at such a speed and the and the needs and the wants are so material and consumerist kind of uh, drive that is pushing them that one needs to temper that with a little bit more of uh, going back to the old roots of look within yourself and get peace within yourself rather than just chasing after this elusive material wealth as to your sense of well-being
1: and I think to add to that, uh, and I think it must be in integrated within it, is that climate literacy—it's—it's it's not shoved to the side, but and there have been there are movements for it to make it a requirement that climate literacy, along with the social emotional learning, which I think is also very important and part of that, that you know when you're studying math or the sciences or you know any of the subjects, that it's integrated so that it's at the forefront of our minds.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's, we, we did one on climate change, and the whole idea is to look at uh, what those impacts are and have a dialogue across uh, students across different parts of the world, those who are emitting and those who are going to be suffering, and, and, and to sort of see their perspectives from, from different perspectives and try to understand that. So, that a kid from the US will understand how a kid from a country like uh, Maldives or Fiji feels like when he, he might be losing his home uh, within the next 20 years with sea level rise, which comes from climate change, and how the fact that he's driving in a gas guzzler to school uh, will have an impact, and that will have to, and the notion of a plea for change in that kind of activities in terms of using mass transport so it's a change in lifestyles but i think you'll feel good that if your your change in lifestyles is going to help somebody and you have that connection with that person that you're going to help would 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 go a long way as you say you'll feel good when you help others and that's and that's been proven again and again by so many studies and and in fact they've have, they've have actually seen shots of serotonin and feel good neurotransmitters whenever you you do something uh, for somebody else. So that's what we
2: have to really keep pushing uh, more and more. Yes, I hope more and more people will find that out. You're right, there's plenty of psychological research now showing that people are more satisfied and fulfilled with their lives when they are generous and when they think of others rather than when they just think of themselves.
1: So I, to, I know.
2: To, to wind up on because I'm going Yes, to,
1: I know. I'm going to do the outro. So I know because it's late there. So. I want to, so you've both done so much. Uh, You've been uh, through your, Peter, through uh, your life's work and of course, your book and foundation, The Life You Can Save, Ananta Duryapa, the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development are so many initiatives that we can only summarize here briefly. I want to thank you both for all you have done to inspire people to live more examined ethical lives and for your important contributions to develop our models of social emotional learning and transformational education and just in general just inspiring us to to do more not just think of ourselves but to think of others all around the world thank you for adding your voice to the one planet
0: podcast one planet podcast is produced by the creative process This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Caroline Vow. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.